what we are trying to do without getting too much into the, the detail uh, is trying to using different nutritional approaches try to kind of turn on the mammary gland so so it demands more nutrients a whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon now you have the brightest minds in the global dairy industry right in your pocket and what's best you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm traveling or running errands it's never been this good and it's never been this simple the dairy podcast show is only possible with support and trust of innovative companies like diamond v because animal health deserves a healthier approach excellent by protecta a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia it's uncomplicated excellence dsm and ab vista Welcome everybody to another episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Gail Carpenter. I'm with Iowa State University Extension and Outreach as a state dairy specialist. Today I'm joined by Dr. Sebastian Ariola Apela, uh, and he is a at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, Sebastian received his bachelor's degree in dairy science from the University of the Republic in Uruguay. His master's is in animal science. His PhD and postdoc are in dairy science from Virginia Tech, and his postdoc in endocrinology is from the University of Wisconsin. He currently serves as an assistant professor at the Department of Animal and Dairy Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Before that, he held the position of assistant professor at the Department of Dairy Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a postdoctoral research associate position. Multiple, post multiple postdocs, right? Two postdocs? Yep, yep. Uh, throughout his career, Dr. Apelo has accumulated six awards and 30 publications, and he is a member of the American Dairy Science Association. And we're excited to have uh, a conversation with him today. So before we go ahead and jump in to our conversation, do you want to just give us a little bit of background about what got you where you are? What made you excited about the dairy industry and, and what, what uh, brought you to the position that you're in? Sure. First, thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm glad to join the podcast. Um, so I'm coming from Uruguay, which is an agriculture-based country, and dairy science, dairy production has an important role there. So since very young, I'm not from a farmer. I was very passionate about dairy production since very young. I study a, a degree that is a mix between agriculture, agronomy production, and animal production, <clears throat> and then. When I came to the U.S. in 2007, I started focusing more in dairy production, dairy nutrition, and dairy metabolism. And I think that it was actually biochemistry what got me most into uh, the area that I'm working more and the professors that I have in biochemistry then. So if you weren't if you weren't from a dairy, what got you? What were, what made you so passionate about the dairy industry when you were younger? And that's a good question. Uh, I love dulce de leche. I don't know if you have heard about, but it's oh, a product that yes. is producing um, that maybe ice cream, uh, dairy products in general. But um, yeah, animal production in general as well. I'm, it's something that I'm very attracted to. Typical fresh cow incidence of clinical hypocalcemia is three to six percent, while subclinical hypocalcemia affects fifty percent or more of mature cows. Based on cutting-edge research. Excellent offers a new approach that is both effective and easy to use. 
For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Dairy, dairy science is really exciting to me because if you're kind of a nerd, but you also really love like agriculture and practical things, it's a, it's a great way to kind of pull the two things together, right? Like you can yeah. really get, like you said, the biochemistry, right? Like The fact that you can get the product every morning and afternoon allows you to do way more research than any other production system. That, that's really interesting. Yeah, the cow is a really fascinating model to work with. Yeah. You work with a few different kinds of models, right? You work with the in vivo model, but you also do some some cell culture work, some in vitro stuff with your research lab? Yes, I did. Um, so after I finished my PhD and I stayed for one year doing the postdoc in the uh, laboratory of Dr. Mark Hannigan, I came to Wisconsin and I did a postdoc in the Department of Medicine of University of Wisconsin-Madison. And there I work with mice and I get much deeper into uh, cell culture and molecular work as well. So when I came to UW-Madison as an assistant professor, my idea was to mix my understanding of dairy production, dairy nutrition, with my knowledge in biochemistry and metabolism in general. And I have used here mouse models, cell culture models, and animal models intensively, yes. So can you walk us through a little bit of your research program and some of your objectives? Sure. So the, the overall objective of my research program is to reduce the environmental impact of dairy production systems, and specifically reduce nitrogen excretion, which is a significant problem, but also something that, as I see it, is is growing as a problem very rapidly in the U.S. It's much more present in Europe, where there is restrictions in not only the nitrogen that you can excrete, but the the, the milk urea nitrogen concentration, something that is monitored closely. And here in Wisconsin, um, I mean, producers are very aware of the environmental problem and very try to be very responsible but they also starting to receive much more public pressure in that regard and as i always say yes it's great we have to be more conscious but the, the producers need, need the tools to to take those decisions and so Right now, we have, they have nutritionists, uh, field nutritionists and producers have limited tools for improving nitrogen use efficiency. So that's the overall goal of our uh, program. But as I say, I'm very passionate about biochemistry and the approach that I'm using to tackle that problem, it's perhaps a little bit different than a common approach, let's say. So what we are trying to do without getting too much into the, the detail, uh, is trying to, using different nutritional approaches, try to kind of turn on the mammary gland so, so it demands more nutrients. And by doing so, it reduces how much the, the body, and specifically the liver, it will discard and end up excreting in urine. That's the, the approach that we have used. And for that, we have mainly focused in one, one protein, one signaling pathway that is called the mTOR pathway. It stands for the metabolic target of rapamycin, rapamycin coming from the Easter Island or Rapa Nui. 
Yeah, I always thought that mTOR was kind of a fun, uh, fun protein to say mTOR. I don't know. It just it, it, is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it used to be mammalian target. Uh, it used to be mammalian target in yes in the in the early 2000s. So this protein, the, the drug rapamycin was also, it has a fascinating story. It was actually discovered in the 70s in Rapanui. And it was, um, the protein was isolated in the 90s. And at that time it was called mammalian target of rapamycin because there are also um, uh, homologs for, uh, for yeast, for instance. And in... I think around the two, around 2010 that was changed to mechanistic target of rapamycin. So I like how you describe that um, that that pathway as a switch that kind of turns the mammary gland off and on. Um, I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than that. But uh, can you tell us what turns on that mTOR pathway? Well, that's a, that's kind of a million dollar question. Uh, yep, <laughs> that's if, what you're studying, oh, right? Oh, exactly. <laughs> if I have all the answers. Um, you want more funding. You don't want to give us the answer right now because you want to still get more funding. <laughs> no, so we, we do know what turns on the emptor pathway. And there are the research as, as emptor is also is present in every cell in all mammalian species. And it's very important for human health. Um, emptor is heavily studied. And the number of molecules on the, even the number of conditions that can turn on and turn off mTOR keeps growing uh, by the months, I would say. You get new publications. But the canonical activator of mTOR are the, first the branching amino acids, although there are more amino acids now that uh, have also been described. In a recent publication, we, we study all the essential amino acids in mama, specifically in mammary cells, because uh, different amino acids may have different roles in different uh, cell types. So we focus specifically in mammary cells and the what we call the TOR amino acids that are five essential amino acids are uh, including the branching amino acids, methionine and threonine, are the ones that turn on mTOR. But in that publication, very interestingly, what we also uh, discovered was that those amino acids cannot have an effect on mTOR if there is not a presence of insulin. And so another focus of our research is how the energy, the different energy sources interact with amino acids to activate mTOR, to stimulate the mammary demand, and to stimulate milk protein production. Yeah, it's kind of uh, nutrition 2.0, right? Like it's, we tend to look at nutrients as, as just fulfilling um, some sort of requirement, uh, just as a fuel, but it turns out, um, and I've seen some of the, the data coming out um, on this mTOR, and, and I think there's other examples of other other nutrients as well that they're they're signaling, um, you know. So they have in addition. So it's kind of a, a double effect, right? Is that is that how you see it? Well, even more than that, I I tend to reduce the this what I we call the substrate or the fuel effect because if you think from a cellular standpoint or from a um, evolutionary standpoint, it wouldn't make sense that the cells and the body doesn't have any signal uh, to 
to slow down when things are in short uh, availability. They don't just completely run out of nutrients and crash. So these supporting signaling pathways, I believe, play a much more important role than the substrate itself because it's just run out of substrate. That, that would be extremely inefficient, and I don't believe that that happens. And in fact, in a, in a second publication that we published in using a mouse model of lactation, we, we, what we did is we restrict uh, the protein in the diet of lactating mice to 50% of the protein that they were consuming, or we feed them with the same amount of protein, but we, we treat those mice with the drug rapamycin that in, specifically inhibits mTOR. And what we see in the growing rate of the pups, it's lower in both of those treatments, but it's basically exactly the same between those treatments. So if even the mice that were eating uh, a diet with twice the amount of protein, if we inhibit mTOR, they didn't grow more than the ones that were eating 50% uh, protein of the control dream. Well, that makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary standpoint, right? Like a body has to know, an animal has to know whether they're in a time of feast or famine and be able to uh, be able to partition nutrients differently based on if there's, is there a lot of nutrients around, right? That I can, that I'm, I'm going to have plenty to eat. I'm going to have plenty of fuel for a while, or, or am I going to have to start, you know, maybe saving some of this and, and partitioning less towards my pups or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that that the nutrients would have kind of that double role that it's not just fuel but also serves as kind of a, a message to the rest of the body. Exactly. That that makes a lot of sense. Now the big question, because I said that's the million dollar question, but I think that the the most important, more relevant question for because for a producer, I mean we're we're talking about daily production. So the, the most important question for a producer, for a nutritionist, is what are those nutrients that I can use to activate those pathways and somehow trick the cow to believe that it's in a very good nutritional status, that there is excess of nutrients. So have those pathways activated. And by doing so, having the mammary gland demands more and, and increase the efficiency of utilization of the other nutrients. Okay. That is what we are trying to achieve with when we are translating this work that we do in vitro and in mice to the work that we are doing with cows. Right. So that she's not saying I need to take this energy or this protein and store it later for when I'm in for when I'm in famine, but I can I can use it towards milk production. Yes. And the problem with amino acids, the problem with nitrogen is that the cow can increase or decrease the muscle the, the muscle tissue but it's not truly an storage uh, tissue so, so most of the amino acids actually the the one that is checking the level is the liver and when they cycle through the liver many times whatever is in excess the liver takes a little bit takes a little bit, like takes a, a small bite each time. And so the, the bigger the pool, exactly, the bigger the pool, the, the bigger the bite. 
because it's proportional. So we have, that's why our objective is turn on the mammary gland, remove more from blood. So what is recycling, what is going back to the liver is smaller and the bite of the liver is smaller. Gotcha. So I think this is, a, it kind of brings me to a comment that you made um, when when we were exchanging some information beforehand. Uh, some Something that you think is maybe a little controversial that you think that not everybody agrees with is that calories are not just calories. And I think this probably ties in with what you're talking about here with the amino acids as well, that maybe amino acids aren't just amino acids. Um, and I know that uh, you said you did some postdoc work with with Mark Hannigan at Virginia Tech. Um, so I know that he's kind of trying to blow up this whole idea of essential amino acids and, and getting us to think in kind of a bigger model um, about not just the amino acids as the requirement, but as these signaling factors as well. Um, so can you kind of summarize that that controversy for us a little bit? Yeah, so the when we look at the models, the models, uh, traditionally look at the nutrients in general, as we were saying, as fuel, as substrate. And so they basically assume that when they, we run out of them, we stop producing, okay? And that is, was traditionally represented by, by the limiting amino acid theory with the barrel and the different stops of, that were representing those amino acids that the, the, short, the short stop will allow the the leak of water out, so we'll set the level. Um, but we started, and we have long conversations with Mark about this, and we we, we did a, an experiment that for this we used tissues because it was the time that I was a PhD student and worked really hard in the lab, and so we have 28 different treatments. And, and so what we did is we supply uh, this pool of four, five, four different amino acids uh, at different levels. And what we observe in terms of protein synthesis, of casein synthesis specifically, is was that the, we could have in all those amino acids in a low level, and we could stimulate casein synthesis with one, or we could stimulate casein synthesis with another one. And and the cell didn't care which one. If 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 we supply one that had this stimulatory role, it will respond. The, maybe the rate of one or the other are not the same, but it will respond to one or the other. And that's not allowed by the limited amino acid theory. And the same happens with, or or a similar concept happens with energy. When I say calories are not calories. Um, if there is an energy source that has a stimulatory effect on, on insulin, for instance, and insulin is playing an important role estim uh, promoting the effect of the amino acids or further uh, working in synergism with those amino acids, well, some type of calories may, be, may allow higher efficiency in the utilization of nitrogen than other type of calories. Uh, so that's something that we're also very interested uh, and we are uh, doing a lot of research in that area, how the different energy sources can, in, uh, along with, with those store amino acids, can promote further nitrogen efficiency. So is it really that we can get rid of the theory? Or the, the theory of, of limiting amino acids doesn't explain all of the responses that you saw in some of your experiments, right? But is it that that theory is 
wrong or is it that that theory is incomplete? That, that's a good question. So when I say that the substrate is not the main driver, of course, the substrate need to, needs to exist. Okay, if if there is uh, if there is a certain amount of methionine in the milk that the cow produced today, that methionine that the cow cannot produce, it has to be consumed, needs to be there. Okay, that that is obvious. This is mass conservation. This is synthesis of essential amino acids, which um, uh, the cow cannot do, but we have to be mindful that the cow only retains in milk between 25 and 30% of the nitrogen that consumes. More than 70% of the nitrogen is being excreted. So there is a lot of room there. And I remember a, a, a work from, uh, from the Netherlands um, uh, that estimated that the cow could be, we could increase nitrogen efficiency up to 40% perhaps. So the, that is more than 50% increase in nitrogen efficiency. There is a, a, a lot of room there to trick this theory or trick the animal to increase the efficiency by uh, relying more on the stimulatory effects of signaling nutrients. Gotcha. Really encouraged, by the way, to hear you talk about the importance of, of nitrogen um, when we're talking about environmental impact. I think we spend a lot of time talking about carbon and kind of forget about um, our nitrogen foot back, footprint as well. Um, so it is encouraging to me to hear that, that um, that's an area that you've decided to really focus on. And what you're, you know, if this all happens, if we're able to reach our potential, then that has the the ability to have a pretty big impact in, on the industry um, or a small impact, I guess, if you look at it that way, the footprint gets smaller, not bigger. Well, but also from the, the impact, yeah, it's it's a reduction on how much nitrogen is being excreted, which, as I mentioned, you can I'm here in Wisconsin and you can hear different daily in the radio, uh, small towns that are having high nitrates in, in the underground waters, but also from an economic standpoint, in benefit of the producer, uh, the, the bypass proteins are the more expensive ingredient in that the, the producer is going to use in the diet. So if we have to use less of that, uh, if the producer needs to play to plant less soybean meal and has more area for corn silage, for instance, that is also a direct economical benefit of being more efficient. So uh, I think there is both, not only the environmental responsibility, but also the economical benefit of being more efficient. Yeah. So what do you think, uh, if I kind of just bounce off that, what do you think the biggest impact of your research is going to be on how we feed cows? I think that um, not only my research, but the research of um, several of us in, in the dairy science, uh, the the role of forgetting about crude protein, I think that's that's going to be a big change, and it's coming very rapidly. Um, and be, maybe before someone that is still talking about crude protein, maybe before they learn the concept of metabolizable protein, also forgetting about that and talking about individual amino acids, digestible amino acids, and, and balancing at least for 
some group of amino acids, I think that's something that it's going to come uh, more rapidly than what we think. That, yeah, I think that that's something that is coming very rapidly. Yeah. yeah. So you do some work um, with modeling too, right? Um, with 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 our nutritional models. I I did some work with nutritional with nutritional models. I haven't really work on that for it's really hard to get a students interested on that i think that i i think that i could get into mark's lab because i uh, my that was one of my interests and and it's, it's really hard to get interest, uh, students interested in quantitative aspects so we have now in the last few years we have collected more and more data and we are really looking forward to get back into more modeling work to to use it um more as a tool to develop hypotheses. These these very complex systems are are really hard to picture in your head how the responses is going to be if I add this in, in a nutrient or this other nutrient. And the models allow you to do that to to develop hypotheses in that way. So why why do you think that is? Why do you think that there aren't uh, as many people who want to get into the to the? Is it too much math? What is it? Um, is it just something that traditional animal science students don't think about? What do you think the the major bottleneck that you see with trying to get students interested in in modeling as a as an interest? That's a good question. Um, but it's, it's it's clear from the undergrads when when we when we're working in Russian formulations and when when we start discussing the the concepts of KPs and KDs and how, how that is important. I think it may be our fault as professors that we don't find a way to to show how important it is, how applicable it is, the, those concepts, and also to make it entertaining, perhaps. Uh, perhaps we, we have to do our homework as well and not only the, the students. Yeah. Well, so what I'm hearing is that uh, you're putting in a plug. If there are any uh, undergrad or graduate students out there who are interested in this, you have uh, some research they can do. Definitely. Yeah. We have a lot of data right now, yes. Yeah. So I guess I'll ask, um, you've been out of this space for a little while, it sounds like, but what do you think some of the biggest gaps that we have are uh, when it comes to our, abil our ability to be able to uh, model a cow response to some of these signaling pathways? Data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the... Um, for instance, uh, one technology technology that we use now is mass spectrometry, uh, because it allows us to get uh, information about individual um, molecules, individual uh, nutrients, uh, concentration in different pools, which is really necessary for modeling work. And uh, and the the cost of analysis in general is going down. So I think that that is the amount of data at uh, the amount of omics data is growing very rapidly and and i think that in all aspects of science in the last 30 years the growth on that is going to also as as those technologies uh, get more available for data scientists um it's going to grow exponentially i i think that at some point the amount of data is going to be more than what we can handle which happens in other areas um but Right now, or in the last uh, 20 years, getting access to that type of information was a big limitation. Yeah. When you tell me that data is a limiting factor, I hear that funding is also a limiting factor. Is that? 
But doing doing an experiment, doing a cow experiment is quite more expensive than doing a, a modeling work. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Yeah. 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 <laughs> For sure. So uh after you figure out mTOR, right? Uh after you after you run out of questions to ask about mTOR, what's the next uh low hanging fruit that you think that you're gonna be looking at? What's the next what's the next horizon? We we are looking at other molecules that a colleague of mine here in the animal and baby science at UW Madison loves a lot, which is serotonin. Ah, uh, I know what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um and we are we are looking at serotonin. Um, Dr. Hernandez, our colleague, has always looked at serotonin from a calcium metabolism standpoint. We have started to look at serotonin uh, as a potential modulator of metabolism in general, not only calcium, and thinking how serotonin, maybe even along with mTOR, can be a uh, um, a modulator of the mammary gland activity and a modulator of the mammary demand. Because that, not only amino acid efficiency, but nutrient efficiency in general, um, I think that something that is still not answered is what makes the mammary, the, the mammary glands to be able to capture so much nutrients, to shift so much the metabolism from everywhere in the body towards the mammary gland. And, and how can we further potentiate that to make the, the animal more efficient? So you think there's an interaction between serotonin or yeah, serotonin and mTOR? Um, is that with uh, specific to calcium metabolism or amino acid metabolism or both? Uh, I think, but I don't know. Um, okay. We we have some uh, some transcriptomic data that I was before uh, this morning. I was looking at and. And there are there are there seems to be some interaction, but we are really in very early stages of that. So I, I, there is not a lot that I can say. Not that I'm hiding it. It's that right. I, re, I we really don't know. No, that makes it fun, so right? That, that that is more questions. Yeah, that's more questions. Hopefully, more funding as well. Yep, yep. All right. So here are the three questions, and I don't know if you listened to other episodes of this podcast yet. There's a couple out. Um, at the time of this recording anyway. Um, so if you've listened to any of our podcasts before, this these will not be a surprise to you. But the first question we ask is, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Uh, you, it doesn't have to be a book. It can be another kind of resource. Um, but what would be your favorite dairy-related book or resource? So this may sound very boring, but uh, the, the book that uh, Dr. Baldwin worked about the, his cow model that is called Molly is I I have it here in my office and and it's not only about modeling but it's all much more about understanding metabolism. It's something that I I look very often. Yeah. So, what would be your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture, not related to agriculture at all? Um, this is also. This is also very, very boring, but I'm looking at it. It's general chemistry from uh, Pauline. It's a, it's an excellent chemistry book. And I realize when people are, uh, students are trying to take more uh, fancy courses, uh, I realize how important those basic science are for our career. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um I uh, I talk to my our undergrads about that all the time too. Once they get to the senior level, and it's like, see, this is where like if you had paid attention in chemistry, 
this is where that would come in handy. <laughs> I, I talk as well, but they don't believe me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I agree though. There's some resource, there's some books that you just find yourself, maybe they're not the flashiest or the, the sexiest, right. But you just keep pulling them back off the shelf all the time because you're just like, they're, they're solid. They got the basics for you. So I wouldn't call it boring. I'd call it, um, foundational. That's true. Yeah. yeah. There you go. All right. And then lastly, in your opinion, what sex successful dairy professionals apart from those who are not successful? Huh. Uh, I think curiosity and uh, wanting to learn more. Uh, it's, it's really, it's really hard, hard to, to stay up to date because it's so much information. It's, it's grown exponentially. Um, but those that, uh, and I see that with the students, uh, successful students, but also with the producers, I think that those that don't just rely on the recipe that worked yesterday and try to, to learn something new, it's, it's critical because we, there are still much more room as I was talking about nitrogen efficiency. I think we are not there yet. There is still plenty of room for improvement. Yeah, I think that's so important. I'm really glad that you that you said that and that you phrased it that way. I think, you know, when we're talking about mentoring undergrads, grad students, one of the things that I always try to to emphasize to them is that like I can look back on my, my career hasn't been that long, but I can look at, you know, where thing where the industry was when I started college to where it comes now and it's only going to it's only going to evolve faster, right? Like you're talking about our understanding of protein and how we're going to be able to do diets based on amino acids and, and kind of leave crude protein behind. And you won't stick around very long in this industry if you're not open to learning new things because this it's a kind of a breakneck speed that we're moving at. Yes, I don't think so. I think it's, it's totally necessary yet. Yeah. Well, uh, is there anywhere, if any of our listeners want to go find more information about your lab or your research, is there anywhere that they can find you online? Definitely. We... We have the the lab website that you can access through the through the UW Animal and Dairy Science website, and we're also on Twitter. Although I use it more for uh, for looking for information rather than for posting, I should be more active. Uh, but you can uh, find us at at Ariola Pelo Lab. All right. Well. Thank you so much for your conversation today. Uh, really enjoyed uh, hearing more about your research program and some exciting uh, new things that hopefully we'll be seeing uh, coming around the corner for us. So thanks again for taking the time to talk to us today and joining us on the Dairy Podcast Show.